This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I don't think they fear anything. I mean, they, they according to their thinking, they defeated, uh, their fathers defeated one superpower, the Soviet Union, and uh, they have defeated another superpower and driven uh, that superpower out of the country. So they are a very big high at the moment. If I were an American adversary, what I would take away from this is that the right strategy is to just wait out the United States. In the coming years, uh, this will be seen as an opportunity for the United States to refocus in ways that make its commitments to its core interests more, not less, credible. Afghanistan. It has been called the Forgotten War until very recently, because what's happening now will not be easy to forget. The Taliban have won. The U.S.-backed government has fallen. And after 20 years, tens of billions spent, hundreds of thousands of lives lost, and many more hanging in the balance. We have put together a special program to explain and debate the U.S. decision to leave Afghanistan. Hi, everyone. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared. And today we'll start off with a conversation with renowned author Ahmed Rashid, one of the world's leading experts on Afghanistan, who has written extensively on the Taliban and their history. Then we'll pivot to a conversation of competing ideas about whether America's choice to pull out was the right one. Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute will have it out with Daniel Markey of Johns Hopkins University. But up first, my conversation with Ahmed Rashid. Ahmed Rashid, thanks so much for joining us on Intelligence Squared. Uh, there, there's nobody who knows more about the history of the Taliban and uh, and and potentially its future, probably than you. Um, you you wrote the definitive work on the Taliban back in the 1990s, and I'm having a, personally a sense of deja vu because in a way we had this conversation 20 years ago when I was working for Nightline and. The Taliban had supported Al Qaeda, and Al Qaeda had just attacked uh, the World Trade Towers. And I did a story about where did the Taliban come from. And of course, I turned to you for the main interview in that story. And now here we are, twenty years later, in a way, kind of asking the question all over again. So, what we wanted to do for our our audience was just lay out how this all happened. This this comeback by the Taliban to the position uh, where they control Afghanistan to some degree, uh, and they controlled it 20 years ago, and in the interim, they did not. What's happened in the last few months that enabled this comeback by the Taliban? The the Taliban uh, emerged in uh, 1992, the winter of 1992-93, as a a counterfoil to their elders who were fighting a civil war between uh, the various warlords and the tribes and the ethnic groups, the younger generation got totally fed up and basically uh, set up their own uh, group or party, uh, which they call Taliban, because Taliban means the students of the madrasas, of the religious schools, and, and many of them had come from the religious schools. And they were obsessed with making peace and with uh, disarming the population. And they were highly successful in both areas. And very soon, in the Pashtun belt, which is southern Afghanistan, they became uh, extremely popular. And uh, people just laid down their arms in front of them and sort of elevated them on their shoulders. They became like football stars. And uh, by 95, they were at the gates of Kabul, which was then being ruled by the government of Professor Rabbani and his uh, military chief, Ahmed Shah Massoud, and they held out for quite some time, but they eventually, uh, Kabul fell to the Taliban uh, with the help of Pakistan's intelligence agency. In the meantime, they gave shelter to a lot of militant uh, groups, including Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, who became a best friend of uh, the Taliban leadership because he brought with him uh, money and expertise and bomb-making equipment and um, 
um, all, all, all sorts of things. And uh, we then saw that um, uh, Al-Qaeda became fully embedded with, with the Taliban and, and launched military offensives on behalf of the Taliban against Ahmed Shah Massoud. Eventually, Al-Qaeda poison, uh, uh, killed Massoud uh, just the day before 9-11, and it was a very strategic choice that they made because by killing him, they had eliminated uh, the major resistance that Al-Qaeda would face after 9-11. And, uh, of course, after 9-11, they were uh, defeated by the United States, and, uh, and they, they scattered. They scattered around uh, Afghanistan. Many went to uh, their madrasas in Pakistan. Um, others uh, uh, fled into the villages and into the rural areas. We, we know because you've written about it that in 1996, they were initially welcomed by the Afghan population, which was weary of internal battling between warlords. This time, that's not the case. This time, there seems to be a great deal more fear on the part of the Afghan public, knowing what the Taliban was the last time they were in power. And we're seeing the Taliban saying, no, we're different this time. We are changing the way we're going to behave. What do you make of that? Is that a sincere effort or is this a brief period of public relations they're engaged in? Last time they were ruling Afghanistan, they were absolutely terrible rulers. Uh, and by the time 9-11 happened, in fact, there, there was a chronic food shortage. There was a drought. Um, uh, there was a, the collapse of infrastructure. Uh, the roads had gone to pot. There was no trade. Um, they were terrible. And, and at the same time, they were very fearsome because of their treatment of, um, of men who were not Taliban and their treatment of women. And they completely ignored education and other things. So naturally, this time around, there is enormous fear because people remember uh, the past very well, especially women and students who were barred at that time from going to college and university because the universities were shut down, um, the media was shut down. So all these sectors have been flourishing in Afghanistan more recently, and people are very scared that this is going to be uh, a repeat of the past. Now, so far, the Taliban have given one press conference and, and made it very clear that they are going to change their habits. They're going to allow women outside, take jobs. Um, but the core question is, uh, d does the public trust them? And I would say at the moment, no, until there's going to be more practice seen on the ground. Um, and will, it, will they just liberalize Kabul and ignore the rest of the country? That also is a possibility. Um, and they may well say, well, we'll do all this to Kabul because the diplomats are here and the uh, foreign press is here. And um, uh, the rest of the country will rule according to our old edicts. So, all this is now um, very speculative as to what exactly the Taliban will do on the ground. They promise great things, but implementing them is going to be another game. So I hear you sounding skeptical about their promises to be, you know, kinder and gentler this time around. Yes, I'm, I'm just as skeptical, I think, as most urban Afghans. There, there's no doubt that they have support in the rural areas uh, where... Uh, their justice system and their, uh, uh, you know, it ha their recruitment and um, uh, has been successful, and they are they do have a degree of popularity in the rural areas. But now, I mean, Kabul is now a city of seven, eight million people when it used to be uh, one million, uh, and so the the urban areas are very, very worried naturally because. Um, you know, they've lived quite normal lives the last few years, and they're very happy doing so, um, both, you know, with schooling, with jobs, with um, all the normal uh, accruements of, of a, of a middle-class life. Does the Taliban actually have the, the, the strength, the military strength, the force, to control a population that large? There are how many Taliban fighters? 75,000? And you're just talking about 8 million people. Do they have 
do they have what it takes in terms of just sheer force to be able to impose their will on the population? Uh, what they have had uh, in the past to impose their will has been fair. Um, they, ha- they, are, they are extremely ruthless. For example, in recruitment, um, uh, they will recruit a- any able-bodied man from the family um, despite appeals by uh, the family members who say, you know, we have to farm the land. There's nobody to f- do the farming, to grow the crops. We'll die of hunger. Um, so you, you have instances like that where they are, um, uh, you know, a very hard line. Um, but the other factor is uh, that they have the, the capacity to endure incredible hardship, which a lot of the population does not have. Uh, and I think, you know, the main thing is still this issue of sanctuary. Um, you know, as long as they leaders and as their families and women and children, a lot of them, they feel safe in Pakistan, uh, they are uh, they are going to be quite willing to come out and fight. What does the Taliban itself fear the most right now? I don't think they fear anything. I mean, they they according to their thinking, they defeated uh, their fathers defeated one superpower, the Soviet Union, and uh, they have defeated another superpower and driven uh, that superpower out of the country. Um, so they are a very big high at the moment, and um, you know they are convinced of their moral superiority, their military superiority, um, and and they forced uh, the U.S. Army to retreat. So they have a very um, uh, a, a very heroic image of themselves as as you know as somebody as as a group as a force uh, which has achieved almost the impossible. Are they seeking legitimacy from the international arena? Well, I think that has been the main issue for why we are seeing a softer, gentler Taliban. They do want international legitimacy. They realize that last time only three countries recognized the regime. They want legitimacy. They want aid. Right now, there's another major drought going on in Afghanistan. There's a huge shortage of food, of medicine. They've got this epidemic uh, going on for which they don't have the equipment or the hospitals to deal with. I think they're more conscious of their social responsibility, that they have to be responsible to the to the population. And uh, in the statements they've made, they've talked about serving the people. Now, you know, we have to see whether this is going to be realized or not. But uh, uh, certainly the language is there uh, and the, the, they're admitting that they need to do things differently than last time. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S., more when we return. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. What about their, what, what are they saying about how they're going to treat women and girls? Well, again, uh, you know, they have said that women can work, uh, which has come as quite a big surprise. And of course, they've said women can go to school, but separate school. Now, uh, not uh, colleges, schools with boys. Now, last time, I remember very well arguing with the Taliban, they kept saying, well, we, we, we will set up girls' schools, but somebody has to build separate schools. Now, that could be an excuse again down the road, that uh, until there are separate buildings for separate girls and boys, we will not allow them to study together. Now, uh, that could provide a big blockage for um, education. Um and and but on women, for example, they have insisted that you, women don't have to wear the full veil; they can just wear the head covering, which is uh, uh, and 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 women have been testing that out in the street in Kabul. But again, you know, we have to see what they're going to practice in the smaller towns and cities in the countryside. Will women be able to get educated and hold down jobs? Remember, I mean, with. The last 20 years, we've seen women as soldiers, as police women, as governors of provinces, as um, uh, and of course, you know, technically uh, computer savvy 
girls have are part of the media revolution, the technical revolution. Um, so, uh, uh, will will the Taliban be keeping all this together? I think I think there's a lot of well, not skepticism. There's a lot of wait and see at the moment as to what they will do. Really, what are the internal forces? Again, inside Afghanistan is what I mean by internal. Who who will be pushing back against the Taliban? Well, that that too is is a very difficult question to answer. I mean, the warlords who had promised to raise militias to fight the Taliban have all kind of disappeared. The, some uh, some of the major warlords have fled to Central Asia um, and uh, to Iran and to Turkey. Um, so they, for the time being, are not obviously going to lead any resistance. I think the, the, the main problem for them is to satisfy the needs. Um, for example, the economic crisis that is coming is going to be critical. The, the, the Americans have locked up the um, $7 or $8 billion worth of reserves that Afghanistan has banked in the U.S. Um, now, without those reserves, Afghanistan can't buy... Um, food and other goods on the on, on the world market. Um, so there's going to be an economic crisis coming, um, and and uh, it's it's not clear at all if other countries are going to provide the wherewithal so that the Taliban regime can 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 prosper as it were. Um, so there's an economic crisis and there's a natural crisis and this epidemic and and the the, the climate and the drought that is happening. Um, and, you know, they are very desperate to, to win legitimacy. We've heard that possibly the Chinese may um, recognize this government, but uh, I don't, and, and maybe other neighbors will follow, like Iran and Pakistan. But I don't see the West um, actually legitimizing this government or recognizing it um, until there is real practice by the Taliban on these big, important social issues. And now with that background from Ahmed Rashid, for which we're very grateful, we're going to pivot now to the promised debate between Corey Shaki and Dan Markey. And we're, we're going to be looking ahead to a certain degree uh, on the consequences, uh, trying to predict the consequences of the events that have just taken place in Afghanistan. So Dan and Corey, first of all, I want to say thanks so much for joining Intelligence Squared. Yeah, it's my it's pleasure. It's a great pleasure. So the question we want to examine is whether pulling out was the right decision in these terms, whether the price that will be paid for the U.S. departure is going to be steeper than the price of having continued the mission would have been. And price paid by whom is part of what we want to discuss. I'm leaving that deliberately open because there are several stakeholders here, including the U.S. government and, of course, including the Afghan people. So I, I want to start with you then, Dan, on this question. Was pulling out the right decision uh, looking forward? Will, will the price that is going to be paid for this U.S. departure going to be steeper than the price of having continued the mission would have been? Sure, yeah. Well, look, gazing into my crystal ball, uh, which is all I can do in, in this case, uh, I'm, I'm still uh, concerned but reluctantly have come to the have come to the conclusion that uh, this probably was the right move. Um, the costs uh, in the near term are obvious. Uh, looking further afield, we do have to contend with the possibility of a, a resurgent terrorist threat from Afghanistan that will be harder to deal with from afar. Um, so that's obviously a problem. And then continued uh, violence and uh, repression of Afghan people, also a cost, uh, and that the potential that this would also spill over into a regional context, which is already a messy one, uh, also a potential cost. Um, but there were costs to staying, um, and I don't think that we should uh, downplay those. And there will be opportunities uh, if the United States can separate itself uh, more from this conflict, opportunities to deal with a broader uh, set of geopolitical challenges, which really I think uh, everyone or nearly everyone recognizes are going to be uh, quite difficult for the United States to face, uh, starting with the rise of China uh, as, a, as a competitor in the international system, but including many other challenges as well, that when you put Afghanistan up against that, 
looks like uh, a, a lesser concern or a slightly lower priority than it did after 9-11. So on the whole, yes, many foreseeable potential costs, but also some opportunities as well. All right. So yours is not an either or decision. You're, you're, you're depicting the situation as murky and gray. And of course, predictions and crystal balls are, are difficult to, uh, to count on. But on the whole, you feel that whatever costs may come, they would be less than the cost of having stayed. I want to bring it over to Corey Shockey now and, and put the same question to you, Corey. I think the cost, both directly and indirectly, of remaining engaged in the Afghanistan mission are lower than the costs of leaving. So the United States had 2,500 troops stationed in Afghanistan. That was 40% of the total international effort. So other countries were contributing 60% of the effort internationally, and Afghans had since 2015 been bearing the burden of combat operations. And it's certainly true that the last two years have been more violent in Afghanistan than before. And my read of why that is, is because the Taliban accurately assessed uh, that we were already on our way out the door. You know, violent attacks against security forces are at the highest level, even before these recent two months, have over the last two years been at the highest level since 2001, and yet not a single American soldier had been killed. That's because Afghans have been carrying the danger and the load, and were willing to continue doing so as long as the United States would itself and as the leader of the international effort remain standing by their side and helping them do so. 70,000 Afghan national security forces have given their lives for their country. Um, And we uh, paid a very high initial price, but stabilizing uh, the situation in Afghanistan the last five, six, seven years has actually not been a high price for the United States directly. Uh, and I think sustaining that remained in our interests. I also think indirectly the consequences of us abandoning Afghanistan are going to be consequential. I mean, if you look at the angry statements by British government figures, you know, their, their defense minister crying at this at what is transpiring in Afghanistan, their effort to organize an international force to backfill us when we abandoned Afghanistan. Um, You know, that the British are so critical of the costs we are incurring for everyone, I think should be significant. If I were an American adversary, what I would take away from this is that the right strategy is... Um, to, you know, to just wait out the United States. And if I were a country reliant on American security guarantees, I would be really worried about an American government unwilling to continue burying, excuse me, to continue carrying a very light load um, of sustaining uh, the positive progress, even amidst violence in Afghanistan. Uh, If the United States isn't willing to do that, how can we trust them to do the really hard stuff that we need? All right. So you've both you've both laid out uh, quite nuanced uh, explanations for the positions that you're taking on the question. I I just want to ask you, Corey, um, a little bit yes and no on this. You're you, you you do seem to be saying that your main critique right now is a question of execution of the U.S. mission. Am am I correct about that? That it could have been executed uh, in in a more more productive way? Unquestionably so. Okay. And my second question is, are you saying then that there was a salvageable situation? Yes. Which, okay, secondly, I want to take that back then to Dan. So, uh, and again, I want to explore the nuance that you've both raised, but I want to sort of stay stay at the surface level right now. Dan, do you think that there was a salvageable situation there? To be brief, I think we missed that uh, opportunity uh, years ago. 
the situation, I, I wish the situation is the way that Corey had laid it out, uh, that it was manageable at low levels. But unfortunately, it was deteriorating. The lack of attacks on U.S. forces were principally, in my mind, uh, based on the fact that the, the Trump administration and Zalmay Khalilzad had made a deal with the Taliban that they would direct their fire elsewhere. So, no, I don't think it was sustainable at the levels. I, I wish it were. I think it was probably sustainable at uh, considerably higher levels years ago, but that was not politically sustainable back here in the States. Do we agree on, on what we mean by salvageable? In other words, do we agree on what the mission was in Afghanistan? Because President Biden and Secretary of State Tony Blinken are saying it was a very, very narrow goal all the time, and that was simply to get al-Qaeda inoperable, um, and that that was, that, that was achieved. But uh, what, what were the goals? What were we trying to salvage? What we were trying to salvage was... Uh, creating Afghan national security forces capable enough to do the fighting that the United States needed doing um, and did not want to do, right? So it wasn't just a counterterrorism mission. It was always a mission about training and equipping Afghan security forces and buying time for the government to become stronger and more capable so that we didn't have to do the fighting that they have been doing. Dan, would you agree that that's what we're talking about? Uh, roughly, yeah. I don't have a huge problem with that. I think one could uh, kind of confine the mission even slightly more narrowly to say that what we needed was some kind of a foothold with some kind of a friend, either in the Afghan government or else uh, or otherwise, that would permit us to continue a policy of hitting terrorist groups that would otherwise base themselves in Afghanistan. And the question for the Biden administration now, why the unfolding of this uh, is troubling, is how we will uh, manage to attack those groups potentially as they reconstitute themselves in Afghanistan going forward. Um, but we didn't have a great partner in that. And the, our partner was getting worse as time was going on not stabilizing or improving. And that's, that's where it wasn't sustainable in my view. So, so Dan, you are essentially agreeing with President Biden when he said in his remarks recently that another year, another five years, another 20 years would not have made a difference. It would not have turned, the, it was not a situation that could be turned around. Um, I'm not sure I'm as, as uh, black and white as, as the president is on this issue. Uh, had I been in his position, I might've been tempted to, to keep going. But I certainly understand um, the logic. And as the situation unfolded so rapidly uh, with the um, Afghan National Security Forces uh, falling apart as quickly as they did, uh, I think that does give some greater weight to the extent to which um, they were a, a weak pillar upon which to, to build or to found the Afghan state, and even maybe weaker than I and, and others had thought. So that gives some strength to the president's argument, yes. Corey, do you want to jump in on that? You know, uh, war isn't strictly a test of military capability. It's a test of grit, of political will. And the message the United States has been sending Afghanistan for years, and it's not just the Biden administration, the Trump administration and the Obama administration, going all the, back, all the way back to 2010, what the United States has been increasingly projecting is the limits of our interest in winning this war, right? That's President Obama announcing the surge at the same time he announces the end of the surge. That's President Trump making an agreement with the Taliban uh, forcing the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban fighters and uh, agreeing that the Taliban could continue targeting the Afghan forces, but just avoid uh, firing at us. And then the uh, Biden administration's ultimate abandonment. We shouldn't be surprised that that saps the will to fight of Afghan security forces right? Nor the corruption of the Afghan government and the political failures of the Afghan government. Those two sap the will of a fighting force. So it's not just narrowly a military problem. 
war never is and it isn't in Afghanistan. I get the sense, Corey, and I'll check in with Dan on this, that that Dan is saying that the these mistakes you're talking about in execution were were so enduring, so long term, that we had passed a point of no return, a point after which there 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 was there was no more good to come out of it. Too much damage had been done. That as of this, you know, August of 2021, the die was cast, and that departing was just facing up to that reality. What do you make of if I'm right with um, Dan? Do I have you captured correctly on that? Yeah, it's been a series of frustrations, almost exactly as you pointed out, and there have been uh, a number of points where we uh, turned one way when we could have turned another. They came before the Biden administration. They included some of the turning points that that Corey pointed out, and at some point, yes, we hollowed out the will of the Afghan people. We made it clear that our commitment was uh, minimal. Um, that had already happened before Joe Biden took office or before this unfolded. So, yeah. So, Corey, you agree on that, but I think, Corey, you're saying that that situation was still reversible even today. Absolutely. What you have had in the last three American presidents are political leaders unwilling to make the case and expend political capital to justify why we were doing what we were doing. And that's the reason that 70% of Americans, uh, you know, before they saw the consequences of our abandonment of Afghanistan, favored doing it. The attitudes are amenable to public leadership, um, and we haven't provided it for 12 years or so. So it's not surprising that people feel this is pointless. And so, you know, the argument that we should actually care about what happens in Afghanistan, it's important to our security, and what we are doing in Afghanistan is a cost-effective and successful way to manage the threats that the leadership is worried about, is a case they didn't bother making to the public, even though they believed it because they kept us in Afghanistan. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to learn more. More debate when we return. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's jump right back into our discussion. Dan, I, I was surprised in your opening uh, response to my first question, where I thought you would be laying out the costs of continuing. You started by actually agreeing that there are many costs to our departure, um, including the fact that now it's the return of a uh, of a group of uh, militants who last time they had this shot allowed for the ferment of organizations like al-Qaeda. That was one of the things you cited. Corey also cited as a cost just our loss of credibility with allies going forward. And I want to ask you, do you think that that is a, a, is that a cost that we can recover from? Or is that, is Corey right, that that's a devastating, devastating price that we're going to be paying? Oh, it, it, you know, it could cut either way, and I hate to be so wishy-washy, but uh, credibility is a funny thing. Um, you know, a uh, number of academic efforts to understand the loss of credibility that we suffered after Vietnam, uh, for instance. And a big part of the issue of credibility is, is who's doing the, uh, the, the review. Um, if an ally, uh, say Japan, is reviewing our position in the world, and saying, well, now the United States will have greater resources to focus on East Asia and the Pacific uh, to meet uh, a rising Chinese challenger in that region. We'll be less distracted by uh, and tied down by its commitments to Afghanistan, uh, perhaps over time, uh, certainly not today, but in the coming years. Uh, this will be seen as an opportunity for the United States to refocus in ways that make its commitments to its core interests more, not less credible. So that's certainly an argument that, that I would make. Um, and, and I think uh, at the moment we are, we stand shocked, humiliated and weakened. And there's no question about that, but how that will play out over time is I think less clear. 
It, take, it takes some optimism on your part, Dan, and you're not unwilling to be optimistic if, yeah. if that's what it takes. <laughs> yeah. All right, let me yeah. take it back to Corey on that point. Yeah, so I agree with Dan that it's difficult to project with any certainty how this will play out over time. My guess, my judgment is that um, America's allies are going to be really nervous. You know, credibility is always an issue for two reasons, right? Like, I'm a NATO expert. We've been having the conversation since 1948 about American reliability to come to the defense of Europe. Um, And we've been, and European allies have been wringing their hands about whether we are not worried enough about the Soviet Union and Russia or whether we're worried too much or that they're not comfortable with how we're thinking about how we would defend uh, their and our interests and territory. So there's always going to be a high baseline of allied concern, and that's simply a function of two things. First, of of our friends and allies' ultimate reliance on American strength for their defense. And second, for the fact that the United States pretty frequently gives indications that we're an ally of questionable reliability. So I agree with um, a point, the point that, you know, this isn't the first time American credibility has been questioned. And it's not the first time we've done things to deserve it being questioned. But I do think one of the costs of abandoning Afghanistan is we are now going to have to do a whole lot more work um, to explain why abandoning Afghanistan doesn't mean we'll abandon Taiwan or South Korea or Japan or Germany. That is a cost we are paying because of the Biden administration's policy choices in Afghanistan that we wouldn't otherwise have incurred. And, you know, you can make the explanations, uh, but it's going to be an additional cost. One other thing that I'd like to raise is that the United States has the ability to focus a lot more attention and effort on managing a a malevolent China without writing off everything else we do in the world. You know, Afghanistan was not a major driver of American policy or governmental effort for at least 15 years. Um, and yet we have still been able to get our gears meshing to focus on increasingly on managing a rising China. We can actually do more than one thing at a time. And the proof of that is nobody's talking about writing off Europe in order to manage China. Uh, so we have the ability to calibrate our effort in lots of parts of the world that we still need to care about, even as we manage China. Dan, we're seeing these images out of Afghanistan that are shocking even people who are not interested in grand strategy, who maybe were not paying much attention themselves to Afghanistan for the last two decades. At the human level, though, it's touching people, it's upsetting people. You know, we, we, uh, Ahmed Rashid and I were talking before we began this part of the conversation about whether, in fact, the Taliban really is going to be the kindler, gentler self that it's claiming that it's going to be. And he's skeptical about that. But talk about how to frame your position that we're overall, the U.S. is better off getting out of there now when people are seeing the impact on the people who are left behind? I would have to agree that uh, it's, it's gut-wrenching, it's, um, it's sickening. And uh, anybody who's been working on this for, for a while now uh, can't help but, but be profoundly uh, troubled by it. Uh, the, the question, of course, is uh, not, um, you know, would we, <laughs> would we not like to see this uh, but were we actually, and I think this is the nub of our, our debate here, were we seeing a situation that was trending negative anyway, uh, and where we were seeing all kinds of horrible abuses taking place, even under the last Afghan government in large parts of the countryside, and increasingly um, beyond the writ of the Afghan state that was in, in power, were we seeing many of these things unfold? Uh, even while we were there, 
And what were we prepared to do about it? Um, and, you know, I, if, if the serious, uh, if there had been a serious option for us to up the ante again uh, and to reverse uh, the tides of, uh, of Taliban ascendancy in, in Afghanistan, you know, that, that might have been something that even I would, would contemplate. It's not that I had a problem with it fundamentally. It's just I have not seen uh, any serious political will on the part of the American people. And it's not just uh, Trump, Biden, and Obama, but even under the Bush administration, uh, so easily distracted by other global challenges, resources sucked away from the Afghan war just as it was getting started. Um, this is a problem that, that runs fairly deep and, and wasn't getting better. So, uh, so yes, horrible suffering, significant reasons to be concerned about the Taliban being good stewards of the Afghan state moving forward or uh, responding to the needs of minorities or, or anyone else for that matter. Uh, the question is, might we be better placed to try to do something about it uh, when we are not trying to sh uh, shore up um, a very fragile, fractious, and ineffective government with which we were completely uh, associated? Are there other ways of going about this? I'm not sure yet, but that's the kind of thing that I'd certainly want to try uh, going forward. Let me bring that question to Corey also. Um, yeah, I want to pick up on Dan's uh, last point there, which I think is the essential one. The Taliban had not gained ground uh, since 2015, because principally because of deficiencies of the Afghan military or uh, the advising and training program that the United States and 50-some other countries were involved in. The Taliban were picking up ground because of corruption and poor governance on the part of the government of Afghanistan. And so when we talk about it needing more effort, you know, it, as Dan, if you accept Dan's argument that the situation wasn't trending positive and wasn't sustainable, the solution didn't need to be more American military forces. It needed to be better engagement with the Afghan government to make it more legitimate with its own public by reducing corruption, increasing transparency, right? The military operations and military programs don't occur in a vacuum, and they weren't the principal thing that was failing. And so it was possible to uh, dramatically improve the situation in Afghanistan by dramatically improving governance and legitimacy. And we in Afghanistan, as in Iraq and as in other places, we expect the military to magically solve our problems and we redouble military effort when, it, when it's not working. And that's actually not the weak link in the chain. So when you think about things that we could have done in Afghanistan, to, if you think a tide needed turning, governance is the way to turn it. And so it didn't require huge surges in American military forces. It didn't require combat operations. It required um, transparency. It required governance. It required us caring about something beyond the military in Afghanistan. But it still required a military presence in Afghanistan for that to have any clout and credibility, would it not? Yes. And those... 2,500 American troops, which were 40% of a international total, were sufficient to that task. Dan, you mentioned, again, as the, one of the potential costs that you're aware of and concede is the uh, increased risk to global security and American security as the result of having the Taliban back in charge of that territory called Afghanistan. Um, I want to pivot perhaps a little bit to talking about what we can do about some of these things. So, what options does the United States have now to protect itself against any kind of recurrence of an al-Qaeda sort of uh, taking root in, or other groups taking root in Afghanistan that could become, uh, could become a, a serious uh, security threat to the United States? Yeah, that's that's a really important question. I want to get to that in a second. I, I did want to just follow up, though. Uh, oh, go for it. Please Corey do. Because I, I, I do agree that this wasn't a, a military alone solution. 
And I was one that, uh, you know, in my time at the State Department and elsewhere, uh, supported the idea that the United States really needed to focus more attention uh, on governance issues uh, and actually making it clear why the Afghan people had a stake in this state uh, that had been founded uh, with the help of the United States. And what I have come to conclude, again, incredibly reluctantly, but now over many years, is that the United States government is terrible at this and that our capacity for improving the governance, the quality of governance, uh, fighting things like corruption or countering a narcotics trade or uh, improving um, leadership uh, within another state, our capacity for this is shockingly limited. Is that, is that in a sort of fatally and inevitable way? Uh, I think that one can imagine a United States government that was considerably better at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are people who would like to see our government be better at it. And yet, uh, despite all a series of reports and efforts and all kinds of investments, and it still hasn't happened. And, uh, you know, you can look at things like the rapid turnover of our diplomats or Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like we just can't do it. And if it seemed like that for 20 years, you know, how are we going to do it? How are we going to do it now? So in a, in a way, Dan, you are saying that, you know, if, if being good at helping other communities improve at governance, that we just don't have what it takes to teach that, to do that well, to instill that. We, at this point, we do not have what it takes to do that. Uh, regretfully, it doesn't seem that we do, now. I want to bring that very point then, stay on this point and bring it to Corey. And thanks for raising that point. Um, Corey, I, so, so you're hearing from Dan, yes, it would be great if we were good at that. We're not. And he doesn't see that changing. So I agree with him that we're not good at it. But I don't agree that we can't be good at it or we shouldn't be good at it. Uh, If you look at successful government capacity building programs, uh, Plan Columbia, I think, is a successful model where we engage not just militarily, but in helping a government regain the legitimacy of its public um, through better governance. And I agree with him that we're bad at it. But I don't think that justifies us always being bad at it or compromising important national security objectives of the United States by resigning ourselves to that. We uh, have done this well in prior instances when we cared to do it. The two most celebrated cases are the reconstruction of Japan and Germany after World War II. But my favorite example is. is uh, our engagement with the Kurds after the 1991 Iraq War, right? Like when I started working on Iraq, um, Kurdish leaders were killing each other at wedding parties. But after the 91 war, through Operation Provide Comfort, we, we created a safe area. We grew a generation of leaders that saw their challenges the way we saw their challenges, and we supported them into the success story that that the Kurdish areas of former Iraq have become. So we actually can do this. It's not that we've never done it well. It's not even that we've never done it well in recent memory. Um, it's just that we haven't bothered to do it. I would see one other point um, that I think Dan and I agree on, which is the degree of difficulty in Afghanistan is could well be higher than in any of those cases. Afghanistan was 185th on the UN Human Development Index in 2001. So this was always going to be hard. It was always going to be long. It was always going to create the need for real excellence on the part of the United States government for helping shape a culture of governance, and we haven't given that. Dan, what do you think of the example of, of the Kurds in 1991 as an example of where, where, we, where the U.S. did get it right? Yeah, I think uh, we can get it right on occasion. Uh, Maybe that's a a good example. Uh, There are things that we can do, um, but uh, the the record in Afghanistan, which is the you know the critical case here, uh, is is not so good. And I don't want to say that we made no progress. Uh, I think that's unfair, Uh, but not nearly enough. Clearly, the Biden administration is not eager 
to make the kinds of investments, uh, not in Afghanistan at the very least, uh, in this area. The Trump administration was quite opposed uh, to surges in these areas. And even the Obama administration, which tried, did so only temporarily. So uh, that raises the question, you know, these are, these are elected leaders uh, in the United States. Uh, exactly when is this going to change that Americans are going to really want to have their presidents and secretaries of state and so on take on this challenge and fundamentally alter our capacity in this area? It hasn't happened uh, in any of these administrations. I, I guess I came away fearful that, that I wouldn't see it anytime soon and therefore... What's the point of trying something that we're not capable of doing? I want to thank the two of you for coming on and, and shedding light in, in, your, in your own way. Even though you disagreed on some substantial points, it's clear that you have a lot of common ground and that you uh, were able to talk this through in a way that was not only civil and reasonable, but educational. So uh, I've enjoyed the conversation and learned from it. And I want to thank you both, Corey Shockey and Dan Markey, for joining us on Intelligence Square. I, too, have enjoyed it and learned from it. Thank you both. That was great. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, John. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host... John Donvan. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.